0: Anyway, nah, we're going to get started here. So, you know, this lesson today, um, I don't want this to be an academic exercise. I don't want this to be something rote. Um, uh, but there's some history here. I, I Unfortunately, I love history. Um, but we're going to talk about how God used a man uh, in particular um, and how he changed the course, probably, of countries. And, you know, we're celebrating the 4th of July, our, our nation's birth, but I think most people that have studied the Great Awakening of the 18th century would attribute part of the founding of our country and the Christian basis for the revival that took place there. And so I hope you'll pay attention to this. And my goal is not for you to come out to know more history about this, but to see what God can do through a man. Um, there, there was once a rhetorical question, you may have heard it, said, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to Him. And I'll venture that there's one man that I'm going to bring to you that you may have never heard of. Uh, some of you may have heard of, but his name's George Whitfield. And uh, we had the privilege of getting to learn a little bit more about him in this past week. Karen and I uh, took the first trip we've taken in a while. And uh, uh, I had read about George Whitfield years and years ago, and I knew he had an orphanage in Georgia. And so I Googled, you know, where, where where's George Wheels, you know, what happened to his orphanage? And, uh, lo and behold, it's on the outskirts of Savannah where we were. And on the way out of town, we had taken a couple of tours through Savannah, which has a rich history. And we went to Bethesda. It's now called, back then it was the Bethesda Orphanage. Uh, George Whitfield founded that. And, uh, now it's called the Bethesda Academy. There's no structures left there, but it's a, it's an amazing place to go to. You drive up. And you've got this long corridor of, uh, of live oaks, and I, I don't know about you guys, but I love trees because we don't have many around here. And so you've got this corridor of live oaks with the Spanish moss hanging down, and it's just beautiful. And uh, there was a museum still there uh, to George Whitfield, and um, um, and they're still doing the Lord's work. It's now they're not really housing students, but it's we we got to talk some people there they said it's now a place where they uh students that are children um i can't remember was it just boys only huh yeah just boys only that are coming from troubled homes and they're doing getting a christian education so there's his work still continues um, what 300 years later almost and so anyway let me let me talk tell you about george whitfield um first i want to read some quotes these are people that were either contemporaries or have looked back on george whitfield's life Charles Spurgeon, okay, Pastor talks a lot about him. He's considered the prince of preachers, right? And so this is what uh, Charles Spurgeon says about George Whitfield. Perhaps the single most influential preacher of recent centuries. There is no end to the interest which attaches to such a man as George Whitfield. Often, if I have read his life, I am conscious of distinct quickening whenever I turn to it. He lived. Other men seem to only be half alive, but Whitfield was all life, fire, wing, and force. My own model, if I may have such a thing, and do subordination to my Lord is George Whitfield. But with unequal footsteps, must I follow this glorious track? Uh, John Newton, uh, John Newton, we all know him. Amazing Grace, the writer of that, right? Well, they were contemporaries and actually uh, were, were friends. Um, and uh and Newton says self that Whitfield was the greatest preacher uh after the apostles, and was a great blessing to me, Charles Wesley, and so another contemporary of uh, the Whitfields were John and Charles Wesley. Kim, I know you come out of the Methodist Church, and uh, we know the Wesleys, I did too, and uh uh anyway um And and there was some uh, controversy between, I don't know about Charles and George, but between John and and George, uh, but George Whitfield wanted the Wesleys to preach at his funeral. Um, And uh, Wesley uh, said at the funeral, uh, he proclaimed, have we heard of any person since the apostles who testified so greatly the gospel of grace of God? Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a physician but also a great preacher, Last century said Whitfield is without beyond any question the greatest preacher of all time, and so this is a great man. Let's let's I want to look in to see I want to show you who he was and then what he did, but emphasize the message that he emphasized, and we'll get to that in a minute. Um, he crossed the Atlantic thirteen times. If, if you notice, that's an odd number. He actually died in the United States. Um, he preached eighteen thousand times to over ten million people and realized this is before radio, this is before TV, uh, there's no social media, Facebook wasn't invented yet, uh, we didn't have our iPhones, and, uh, and, and at times he preached to 10,000 people, over tens of thousands of people, sorry. And if you read different instances, I think realistically he probably, maybe the greatest amount, maybe twenty to 30,000, I was reading some things and they said 100,000, I'm, I'm, I'm a little doubtful of that number exactly, um, but he certainly preached to large, large crowds. Um, his father died at the age of two uh, for George, and his family had an inn in Gloucester, England. And so Whitfield, growing up, he did get to go to school, uh, but his main job was, he was the oldest, was to help support the family, working the family inn. It was called the Bell Inn. Uh, They're in Gloucester, and they were pretty poor. Uh didn't look like he was going to get to college, uh, but kind of last minute found out that he could go if he went as a servitor. A servitor, and he got to go to Oxford. He's, he was well educated, but a servitor, uh, was basically a servant, as you can guess. And so you serve the, it's the lowest class of, of students at Oxford. And their job is to take care of the school, serve the staff, but also serve the wealthier students as well. And with that, he, uh, uh made his way through Oxford. While he was there, there was a, a club called the Holy Club, okay, and uh, and this was founded by John and Charles Wesley. The interesting thing about the Holy Club is these are very pious men, uh, but they were pretty much unconverted. In fact, if you study the Wesleys, and when we were in uh, in Savannah, uh, we did a couple of tours. We started at the square both times, same square, and there's this huge statue of of uh, John Wesley. What a lot of people don't realize is is that uh, at the Holy Club and actually uh, John and Charles's first trip to Georgia they were unconverted and it was actually en route to uh, Georgia the Wesley's um, they were in their ship was in a severe storm looked like they were going to perish and there was a group of Christians called Moravians that they're in the bowels of the ship, it looks like everything's lost, and the Moravians are singing praises to God, singing hymns. And John and Charles knew right then that they did not have the saving faith that these people had. And it wasn't until they got back to England that they had a, a salvation experience. Now, George was converted while at the Holy Club. And by the way, uh, they called the club themselves the Holy Club uh I thought it was interesting some of the names that others had for this. One of them was the Bible bigots. Uh and you know <laughs> sounds kind of familiar to today, doesn't it? The Bible bigots. Uh, but anyway, Whitfield was ordained soon after graduation and pretty quickly started filling pulpits, um, doing itinerant preaching. Uh but he kind of was the first to be a little unconventional. Um and he started taking uh his preaching outside the church. And he would go to countrysides, he would go, uh, there's places where he would go, where he would go. They weren't necessarily going deep into mines, but they were strip mining coal. And he would talk to, he would preach to anyone where the Lord led him. Um, he associated with a lot of people we know of. We've, we've mentioned the Wesleys already, John Newton. John Oglethorpe uh, is a man you may not know. We just learned about him last week on our tours. John Oglethorpe was the founder of Savannah, really the founder of Georgia, and a very strong Christian man. Uh, also, William Wilberforce, okay, uh, William Wilberforce uh, was famous for freeing, basically eradicating slavery in the British um, um, uh, government. And uh, actually, William Wilberforce was sent by his parents, who were atheists, to live with uh, his aunt and uncle. And his aunt and uncle didn't realize that, that they were enthusiasts, that was the term used back in the day, they were strong Christians, in other words. And actually, Wesley, or, uh, Wesley Whitfield had preached uh, in their home, and uh, uh, Wilberforce talked about that later in life. He was a contemporary and friend with Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a Presbyterian minister, founder of Princeton, uh, but also probably one of the great preachers of the Great Awakening in the American colonies. And, uh, and uh, this person was not a Christian, but he actually was very good friends with Benjamin Franklin. And uh, as far as we know, Franklin never uh, came to Christ. Uh, but uh, he talks about in his memoirs that Whitfield, through the power of his preaching, was able to talk with uh, Franklin out of a lot of money that went to uh, his uh, orphanages and other endeavors. He preached. Uh, so Whitfield preached all over England, London, Wales, Scotland. Um, he preached to the poorest of the poor. He preached to uh, English royalty. Um, and uh, he founded, like I said, the, the orphanage there in Georgia. He also started an academy with Benjamin Franklin uh, back in Philadelphia, and that ultimately became the University of Pennsylvania. Now, I, Franklin did most of the work on that, but that was ac- actually assisted in uh, by uh, Whitfield as well. So let's understand the times. Let's go back to the 1700s, if you will. And uh, we actually, to understand the times, we need to go back to the 1600s. And so in 1662, under Charles II, there was what they called the Great Expulsion in England. And what happened was, basically, they made uh, the Church of England, the Anglican Church, the only official church. And if you were not a preacher of that denomination, then you were ousted. So 2,000 Puritan preachers were ousted, and it was illegal for them to preach um, uh, John Bunyan may be somebody, one of the preachers that you might be familiar with, uh, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He would be of that era, and actually was jailed several, more than once, uh, for considerable periods of time. But these, but these empty pulpits, uh, not all of them were filled, but they were filled with Anglican pastors or preachers. And to be an Anglican preacher, you didn't need any Bible education. Uh, a lot of these people were just friends of nobles, and they got appointed. And so if you can imagine having your preacher that uh, may not know the Lord, may not have any biblical education, and certainly doesn't have the Holy Spirit to, to teach. And so there, there was a real void. Um, sermons back in those days were, were read to you. They would, they would just sit there, and they would be in monotone, and they would read their sermon to you. And, and that was how sermons were preached. And on comes the stage of Whitfield, who, by the way, in early life, he loved theatrics. Um, and he was a very animated speaker. Uh, but he also was full of the Spirit and was preaching in the fullness of God's Spirit and in the fullness of God's Word. And um, actually, Franklin, when, when uh, one of the times that Whitfield was stateside, uh, Franklin was preaching off a balcony in the, in the courthouse in Philadelphia, and Franklin was really skeptical that, that Whitfield really could preach to this many people. So while while Whitfield was preaching, Franklin slowly backed up. He was going back towards his shop in Market Street, and he got 500 feet, so almost the length of two football fields away uh, from Whitfield, could still hear him. And that's where he made a mark, and he went to a map, made a semicircle around that, and then he, then he calculated if everybody required a two-by-two space, that Whitfield preached 25 to 30,000 people that day. no microphones, guys. And I really think that the power of his voice was even supernatural. Um, so let's look at some of the qualities that made Whitfield the man he was, and so greatly used by, by God. And one of the first things I want to talk about is Whitfield's study of the Bible. And actually, I found six tips from Whitfield on how to study the Bible. I'm going to read some of these to you because I want to get them right. But just um, just know that uh, um, Whitfield was constantly on his knees. He studied the Bible on his knees. All right, and he said, "I began to read the Holy Scriptures upon my knees. This knees this proved meat, m e a t, indeed, and drink indeed to my soul. I daily received fresh light and power from above." He had a he had a a very uh, busy life. Um, and he would sometimes start preaching before sunup and may preach several times a day. Uh, he may be talking or teaching at different, they called them societies, would be meetings in people's homes, and then sometimes late in the night would be either teaching or preaching, and so he may not even get back to wherever he was residing that night till midnight, and then he would be up at four or five in the morning uh, to study the scriptures. And uh, commonly... He would have in front of him on his knees, he would have his Bible, he would have the Greek New Testament, and he relied heavily on Matthew Henry's commentary. That was from the 1600s. Um, so here's six tips for you. Number one is always look for Jesus. Have always in view the end for which the scriptures were written, even to show us the way of salvation by Jesus Christ. John 5:39 says, search the scriptures. For they testify of Me. Look therefore always for Christ in the Scripture. He is the treasure hid in the field, both of the Old Testament and the New. Have Christ then always in view when you are reading the Word of God. And this will guide you to the Messiah. This will serve as a key to everything that is obscure and unlock to you the wisdom and riches of all the mysteries of the Kingdom of God. Number two, read with humility. Search the Scriptures with a humble, childlike disposition. For whosoever does not read them with this temper shall in no wise enter into knowledge of the things contained in them. For God hides the sense of them from those that are wise and prudent in their own eyes, and reveals them only to babes in Christ. So think they know nothing yet as they ought to know, who hunger and thirst for righteousness and humbly desire to be fed with the sincere sincere milk of the word, that they may grow thereby. Number three, and this, and, and this to me was one of the more convicting things, it says practice what you read. Search the scriptures with sincere intention to put into practice what you read. A desire to do the will of God is the only way to know it. If any man will do my will, says Jesus Christ in John seventeen seven. He shall know of my doctrine whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. In addition, in James one twenty three and twenty four, it says, "For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his face natural face I'm sorry natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was." Number four, apply what you read to your own heart. In order to search the Scriptures, still more effectually make an application of everything that you read to your own hearts. For whatever was written in the book of God was written for our learning. And whatever Christ said, we must look upon upon as spoken to us also. For since the Holy Scriptures are nothing but a revelation from God, how fallen man is to be restored to Jesus Christ, all the precepts, threats, and promises belong to us and to our children, as well as to those to whom they were immediately made known. And it says, in all, in, in, it, excuse me, in and it is this application of all, and the emphasis is all, the doctrinal and historical parts of Scripture. When we are reading them over, they must render them profitable. "...to us as they were designed for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, and to make every child of God perfect, thoroughly furnished to every good work." And that's emphasized in 2 Timothy chapter 3. For this is the way God now reveals himself to man, not by making new revelations. And that's something that's that's actually being permeated in the church today, is this new revelation movement. And he's just saying, no, this isn't by new revelation but by applying the general things of God's Word that are revealed already to every sincere reader's heart. Number five, pray for the Spirit's guidance. Before you read the Scriptures, pray that Christ, according to His promise, would send His Spirit to guide you into all truth. Intersperse prayers while you're engaged in reading. Pray over every word and verse. And this is what Whitfield did on his knees he would pray literally over every word that the Holy Spirit would enlighten him. And when, you, and when you close the book, most earnestly beseech God that the words which you have read may be inwardly engrafted into your hearts and bring forth in you the fruits of a good life. Number six, read the Bible constantly. Read the Scriptures constantly or to use our Savior's expression in the text John 5.39, search the Scriptures. Dig in them as they would for, tre- for treasure, for here is a manifestation allusion to those who dig in mines. And our Savior would thereby teach us that we must take as much pains in constantly reading his word, if we are to grow wise thereby as those who dig for gold and silver. The psalmist in 1-2 makes, makes it the characteristic of a good man that he meditate on God's law day and night. And in Joshua 1 8, God said to Joshua, This book of the law shall not go out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate on it day and night. So the, the next quality I wanted to review was just singularity of his message. And what Whitfield emphasized time and time again is being born again. Being born again. A lady once asked Whitfield why he continually preached over and over. That one must be born again. And he simply said, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In John 3, 1 through 3, uh, it's one of my favorite uh, portions of Scripture. Uh, and it says, and in, in, I'll just read this to you. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these things. So unless God is with him and Jesus responded to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You know, and and and, and you know, we, we emphasize so much people making decisions or signing a card or walking an hour or getting baptized. And I don't want to say those are bad things, but the real issue is, are you? born again has the holy spirit done a work in your own life to make you a new person my own testimony was i made a decision when i was 16 17 years old in high school uh that i can promise you my life was anything but uh led by god's spirit or according to the bible and it wasn't till 20 years later plus uh the, the lord took uh Karen and i across the across the globe, uh, of all places, took away everything that we had. I think I had two changes of clothes, and uh, we were actually on a mission trip, of all places. And it wasn't until then that God woke me up and showed me the gravity of my sin and the need to follow Him and equipped me. And it's interesting that um, that... The signs. What are the signs of being born again? Have you ever been convicted of your sin, and have you ever been led to repentance? Those are vital. Have you ever gone to the place where you've thrown yourself on the grace and mercy of the Lord? Have you ever come there? Uh, have your affections are they changing? Do and th- these are signs that I see in my own life, especially looking back twenty years ago. You know, are, are is the love for God, the love for His Word, the love for His people, a love for the lost? Are those things that are increasing in your own life? Also, are the fruits of the Spirit are they being increasingly manifested in your own life? If they're not, search the Lord. Go to the Lord and say, Lord, you know, I I, I need I need you. And I promise you, there are people in this room, I'm sure, that have attended the church maybe even longer than me that don't know the Lord. And, and we want to, I don't want anybody to leave today without pleading for God's grace and mercy to save them. Um, so that's, that's the, that was the singular message. And, and Whitfield is known to plead and beg for people to come to, to the cross. And I'm going to read you uh, an instance uh, uh, this is actually a testimony of somebody that res- that went to hear George Whit- Whitfield's preach. And I know I'm reading a lot, so please forgive me. But I, I think this is fascinating. So this is somebody in uh, 1740 that went to hear Whitfield On the morning of October 23rd, 1740, in a field Kensington Parish near what today is Berlin, Connecticut, a colonial farmer named Nathan Cole received the news that the great evangelist George Whitfield would be preaching in the nearby town of Middleton. Immediately, he dropped his tools and ran to his house, hastily grabbing his wife and saddling his horse, and rushed to the announced site of Whitfield's meeting twelve miles away. Cola's wife alternated between riding and running to Middleton. I don't know if you guys can picture that. That's that's uh, <laughs> I can't imagine because uh, they didn't have uh, Nike running shoes back then. And so, you know, anyway, that was quite a feat. So while his wife is writing, he's running, and then they would get tired and switch off. For he simply must be present to hear the celebrated preacher. Still quite a distance from the city, Colin's wife observed the hillsides covered in what seemed to be a swelling, mist-like fog. As they traveled closer, they discovered the low cloud was dust from the road, as a flood of people descended upon Middletown by horse and carriage. Eager to hear Whitfield preach, some 4,000 people had already assembled at the town square. Cole stood amid the crowd and watched the evangelist make his appearance. He later admitted, when I saw Mr. Whitfield come upon the scaffold, he looked almost angelic. He described Whitfield as a young, slim, slender youth before thousands of people and with a bold, undaunted The talk circulating among the crowd was, God was with him everywhere. As Whitfield began to preach, Cole sensed a great fear gripping his soul. Their preaching came with much power upon this farmer's unconverted heart. Cole said, the younger preacher looked as if he was clothed with the authority from the great God, and a sweet solemnity sat upon his brow. He further testified, my hearing him preach gave my heart wound. By God's blessing, my old foundation of righteousness was broken up, and I saw that it could not save me. The full force of Whitfield's preaching proved to be irresistible. Cole would look back to this day in Middleton as the time when God laid the hammer to his hardened heart and began to convict him of his sin and draw him to himself. So that's just one account. And if you study the Great Awakening, uh, and, and I've read some... Uh, 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 writings uh, surrounding Jonathan Edwards, there was just a tremendous this revival, this movement of God's Spirit was incredible. And what you heard, what you hear, time and time again, is the conviction of sin. That people were just convicted of sin. There was open weeping uh, because there was such a conviction of sin by the crowd and uh, the awakening of souls. Uh, the last thing I just want to cover as I end today, and we 're going to end up really early, so everybody 's got a lot of time here um, is just how how the zeal and uh, that Whitfield had and how he strived in his ministry j C. Ryle stated that the Church of England was not ready for a man like Whitfield. the church was much too asleep to understand him, and a vexed man who would not keep still and left the devil alone you know the 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 overall um, spiritual state of England was not much different than today. You know, we think of all that's going on today, and it's just like our, our, we can't be saved. And you know what? Nothing is beyond God's grip. And what we need to be praying for is a movement of God's spirit that hasn't been seen in a long time. But don't think that our, our country is beyond being saved. Whitfield had several famous sayings. I'm going to give you a few of his sayings here. Uh, that I really like, um, be humble, talk little, think and pray much. God forbid that I should travel with anybody a quarter of an hour without speaking to Christ, of Christ to them. My favorite of his is, we are immortal until our work on earth is done. Uh, he daily, his daily life, um, Consisted of preaching, as I said, several times a day. And he basically wore himself out. He wore out. He did not. One of his other sayings, and I have it written somewhere. I forgot where I put it. But he said, I want to wear out, not rust out. And that's what happened to him. Uh, his last um, days, uh, he, he died in um, Massachusetts. And he wanted to die preaching. And uh, on, he died on September 30th of 1770. He was short, just shy. He was about three months shy of being 56. And uh, he, um, that that Saturday before, had preached from sunup to sundown. And I can't remember where he was staying the night or whether he was in the inn or somebody's house. But he got to there and the crowds were pressing in on him. And he couldn't go to bed. He was up most of the night. And his health had really been deteriorating through this, and despite how he felt, he felt compelled to stay up and, and teach and talk to these people that were with him. And uh, he he died. If you read his last hours, um, you know some people think he may have had a bad asthma attack. I think uh, myself and others would agree. Just reading about the account that he probably died of congestive heart failure. He died at six in the morning and was buried. Uh, in the pulpit where he was supposed to preach that day in Newberry, Massachusetts. And his crypt is still there this day. Uh, kind of weird things happened after... They did weird things back then. And uh, they sent his... You know, they had, a, they had a funeral for him there in Massachusetts, but they sent his arm over uh, to England. And I don't know why his arm... Uh, maybe because he used his arm a lot. I'm not sure. And they had a separate... Funeral for him in England with the Wesleys leading the ceremony. Uh, it was sent back to his crypt, uh, which I thought was good. Um, it, I read, too, that, that, that his, uh, the, his thumb and a rib is in somewhere in, housed in Harvard Medical School. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, and then, then uh, Benedict Arnold, I guess it was during the revolutionary battle, uh, opened the crypt, took some of Whitfield's clothes, shredded it up, gave it to the soldiers, thinking that it would empower them to conquer their foe. Unfortunately, it didn't work. Um, and so, Whitfield, I can't say got to rest in peace. <laughs> or, or if he did get to rest in peace, it was, uh, P I E C E and not P E A C E. But anyway, the, the last few verses I just wanted to, uh, you know, leave to you is just the word strive. It's not something that we hear much in our vocabulary, at least in the church these days. But strive, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Whoever strives to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will keep it. Romans 18, I'm sorry, 1530. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers, in your prayers for me, First Corinthians fourteen twelve says, "So you too, since you are eager to possess spiritual gifts, strive to excel for the edification of the church." And that would go along with Pastor's message that he's been preaching on. Um, Re- Whitfield received a lot of criticism uh, because, again, he realized he's a little bit unconventional here. Uh, for those in the church, the Anglicans really didn't like him uh, because. He was not following the party lines at all. And uh, again, he would be more considered because of his message a dissenter. So people that were not going along with the Anglican Church. And he challenged the Anglican Church, you know, of why are you filling these, these pastorates with people that don't even know the Lord? Um, and, uh, and certainly to think that he didn't have persecution would be an understatement. Uh, when he would preach, a lot of times when he'd come to a community, he might at times follow a fair or a fair-like group of, of uh, people that are selling things. And he would set up his little portable, uh, uh, scaffold and, and just start standing up and start preaching. And, uh, unfortunately, the people that are selling things wouldn't have much of a crowd. And so it was told that, that they would start throwing things at, uh, at Whitfield to get him to quit preaching and that would include uh, dead cats um, it would it would include stones um, uh even human waste uh anything to distract to get him to quit and he was undaunted he would never quit uh once in england uh he was hit in the head with a brick and was comatose several days and and they really thought he would pass but kind of like the apostle paul he was he was uh uh, resurrected almost and continued to preach, uh, for years on end. So why do I, why do I, why do I talk about this? And, and, and for several reasons. Uh, number one is so that we would emulate him. No, we may not be called to be preachers. By the way, I'm not called to preach. Uh, but, um, but so that we could live our lives as a, as, as Virgin said, as him being one of our models to be so devoted in every aspect of our life that we would literally exude Christ and call others uh, to follow him as we follow him. The other thing is to pray that God would raise other men and women that would be gifted as Whitfield to bring the word uh, not just to our country, but to the world at large. Uh, and then lastly, uh, that this would be an illustration to us of the greatness of God's Spirit and what He can do and what He can accomplish. So we, we can know that this can happen today. And so I would challenge us that we would pray for revival for our country and may that happen. So why don't we? I'm going to close and word of prayer and then uh, we all have our closing song. Heavenly Father, we uh, come to You this morning and I thank You for this man's life. And it is a testimony of how great You are uh, George always pointed to you, and uh, Father, it's because of your Spirit that great things were done through him. Father, may that happen in our time. May we see a revival take place that is unprecedented. And Father, we just pray uh, for uh, our churches, that they would be revived. Uh, we pray uh, that your Word would, would be spread abroad, and we pray your Spirit would move. And just, as said, in an unprecedented way, we thank you for uh, this time together. And uh, just ask for your blessings on each person, each family this week. In Jesus' name, amen.